Now, a very warm welcome to everyone who has come this evening. We're grateful for this audience and for your willingness to come to listen to this presentation. As we've called it, the Days, Ages, and Gaps, an explanation of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. It's a great privilege for me to be here. I feel honored that I was asked to come. And, of course, I stand before you in the name of the living God. And I'm standing for the truth of Scripture. I believe it to be the Word of God, and I want to give you reasons why I believe that. I know my audience is largely sympathetic, but if you have any doubts about it, I hope the presentation will help convince you that we are speaking the words of Scripture, the words of truth. And if you have any questions and want personal conversation, I would certainly be happy, and others as well, to speak with you at any time during this weekend. I would like to begin by reading the first chapter of the Bible in the beautiful uh, sonorous cadences of the King James Version. We will read the opening of the scriptures themselves, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. 
And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was Very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. And thank you for reading that with me. I think it's worthwhile to have read that whole section together as we begin this discussion. Now, the outline of what I want to accomplish tonight I have put up on the second slide, if I uh, get my clicker working properly. We're going to think about why we're having this weekend. What really is at stake? Why are these questions raised? Why are they important? Clearly, they're controversial, and some of us like controversy, and some of us don't. But there are times when we need to stand for truth when very much is at stake, And I would suggest that when Genesis is removed or explained away or it is altered from the way God gave it in the scriptures, then we have just swept away the foundation of the Bible itself. We have swept away Christianity. We have made the cross of Christ irrelevant and we have taken away all hope. So everything is at stake. And that is why I want to spend this time with you and talk about why we can not only rationally believe, but firmly believe and confidently believe in what the scripture says right from the very first word of the first page. We're going to look a little bit at what I call the seven C's of Bible history, which I have borrowed from another, as you'll see from the graphic. A little bit about the authority of scripture, the hermeneutics, that is the interpretive method we were going to use for Genesis 1 and 2, and something about the genre of this as a historical narrative instead of poetry or allegory. And then I want to actually go through what we've read together um, in a little bit more careful way and show how the structure of this is so beautiful, first of all, and is such a reasonable way for God in very uh, stately order to bring about the creation that he made with its climax in this chapter being the creation of his creature, man. Then we want to look at some ways that I think People have attempted to explain away Genesis to make it jive, to make it comport with human ideas, even though the perpetrators of those human ideas will have none of it. 
and will not agree in any way with these, what I consider to be compromised positions. And I want to say charitably that while I'm calling them compromised positions, I'm not suggesting that those in my audience who believe in the gap theory or some of the other theories that I do not agree with are in any way compromisers. But I want to show you why that sort of approach is not really a legitimate way to go after the Bible truth. Right from the beginning, we must understand that God says what he means and he means what he says. And then we want to look at finally some of the relevance of this initial chapter of the Bible to the gospel itself. I have a few slides at the beginning that are going to reiterate some of the truth we just read together. And I promise you, I don't have text-heavy slides, all right? My wife's been very good at helping me call those because she doesn't like it when I read slides and the the, um, purpose of PowerPoint really isn't for that. But sometimes it is good, I think, to bring some of the relevant scriptures to bear and help us all read them together. The first verse of the Bible, of course, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, speaks of what we call ex nihilo creation. That's a technical Latin expression. It simply means out of nothing. That is, at one point there was something that was the eternal God, not bounded by time or space not bounded by any of the dimensions that he would bring into the creation when he said, let there be, but God himself, eternally existing, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then out of nothing, that is nothing that we have in the current creation existed, and then when God called it into being, it began, and the universe was brought into being. Psalm 33 tells us what we have also read throughout Genesis chapter 1, that it was merely by the speaking of the word of God that all of this creative activity occurred. Remarkable thing about God is when he says something creative, important, powerful things happen. He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. There was a man once who understood this very well and he said to the Lord Jesus, speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And the same voice that called the worlds into existence met that man's need and healed his servant. When God speaks, he unleashes his power. This is called fiat creation. The word of God bringing it forth, not an Italian sports car, or that wouldn't really be a sports car, would it? Fiat would be a budget line car. This is simply the Latin word for speaking. There is, of course, in our section, the reference to the creation of man and woman. This is explained in more detail in chapter 2, and you're all familiar with that. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, it says later on in the same chapter. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God did this to bring about a creation that would be a theater for the redemption that his own son would provide. So that ultimately Christ himself would be the man who would be glorified forever. That's depicted in the dominion of this first man and his wife, Adam and Eve. All of this is for the glory of God. And as the psalmist tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Clearly, we are to worship the Lord for his wisdom and his power and his glory. We read in Revelation chapter 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
Yet the sad story of the Bible is that man has rebelled against his creator. And instead of the creation speaking of the God who made him and the God to whom he is responsible, the natural thing for a man or a woman now is to turn away from God. Turn away because of guilt over the awareness of sin. Turn away because of rejection of the moral requirements of a holy, perfect God. To turn every man to his own way and to reject the witness of God in the creation. Therefore, the apostle tells us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And this is a very important text. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. When people look at a universe and they look at a night sky and they look at all that has been made in the creation, it is natural, it is normal, it is logical, it is rational for them to say, who made this? This is an effect. Every effect we know of has a cause. Therefore, there must be a cause for this. This is not eternal. It had a beginning. If you question that, we're going to talk about why we can prove the cosmos had a beginning later. Since it had a beginning, who is the beginner? Whoever this beginner is, is is extremely powerful and extremely wise. And I owe him something because of his greatness. More than that, because I am here, he made me. And if he made me, he owns me. And if he owns me, I am responsible to him. These are logical conclusions of a rational mind looking at an enormously complex and beautiful creation. But the scriptures say, although they knew God, they did not, not, did not. They, the people of the world in general, did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, it isn't right for me to stand up here and to say that people who disagree with me are all fools or that they are unwise. Uh, there are ways in which I am foolish, and I don't mean to cast aspersions on your intellect or on your motivations. What I will say is this, that it is very possible for your mind to be deceived and to move into pathways that don't make ultimately much sense in order as a defense mechanism to move away from the logical uh, unassailable, inexorable power of the mind moving in the in the kind of logic that we're talking about, concluding that there must be a God to whom I'm responsible. And so here is a skeptic. All of us were skeptics at one point until the Lord worked in our lives. God, if you're real, says this cartoon figure, show me a sign. And then we watch the day progress. He sees the beauty of the day. He sees the beauty of the night, the amazing stars and the, and the moon, and then the sunrise. And he says, I'm waiting. I'm still waiting. Why does he not perceive? Because his heart is not open to the scripture. Not open, not only to the scripture, but of course, to the witness of creation specifically. Now we're going to talk about a man named Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin did not invent evolution. I think we need to be aware of this, right? This is a, an idea that goes back thousands of years into the ancient civilizations. But rather, he came along at a very strategic time and popularized a notion called natural selection, which we're going to talk about. 
And by the way, I'm the first in this room to say I believe in natural selection. And one of the things that we're going to show is that the equivocation, the way in which there's a bait and switch technique used where we take evolution, natural selection, which is obviously true and designed by God, accept it, see data that support it, and then here comes the switch after we've been properly baited. We move to use evolution in an entirely different sense and to have an entirely different meaning And we're expected to accept both or reject both when, in fact, we need to accept what is true and provable, but stop in the middle and understand that this movement into something that means something entirely different can't possibly be true. If you're not exactly clear about what I said, you will be by the end of this weekend because I'm going to go over it in great detail. Now, Darwin noticed something that others had noticed. It wasn't unique to him. But on his excursions, he noticed that small variations between individuals of a species would give some member of that species a better chance of surviving than others. This is your brief introduction to uh, evolution at the very beginning of our discussion. Variation between living things built into their genes, which vary and are basically reshuffled every generation, bringing large possible variants into a population, and some of those variants will be advantageous, allowing some animals to survive more than others. So far, so good. Since the members with the advantageous differences are more likely to survive, they're also more likely to reproduce and pass on these traits to to the next generation. So Darwin worked with finches in the Galapagos Islands on his famous excursion, and he reasoned that natural selection would improve a species over time and that they could gradually produce new and higher species. It is that second point that is incorrect. Despite the title of his book, which we're going to look at in a minute, Darwin never showed the origin of any species. We're going to make that distinction, and I'd like to reinforce it throughout the weekend. Darwin was not an atheist by any sense. He did reject, though, the plain truth of the scriptures. He continued to invoke invoke rather creation as the probable source of the first life forms, but he did not believe that God created all the different kinds that Genesis 1 says that he did. In 1859, he published his conclusions in a book, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. But despite this title, Darwin never demonstrated, nor has anyone ever since Darwin ever demonstrated, the origin of any species. Clearly, he mistitled his book. He should have called it on the adaptation of species by natural selection. That would have been correct. Not the origin of species, the adaptation of species. Darwin demonstrated something we call the survival of the fittest. The survival of the fittest is a truism. It is what we call a tautology. It's like obvious, all right? In other words, who are the ones who survive? The fit. And what makes them fit? because they have survival advantage. And so you've gone in a circle. You really progressed nowhere. You're stating something that's obviously true. So the fits survive and the survivors are fit. That's what he's saying. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that, but this isn't a particularly original thought, all right? It's simply an observation that when there are variations, as we see with our two woodpecker friends here, one of them has a long bill that he's able to insert into the slot and find the juicy worm, the other one, unfortunately, was born with a short bill, and he will, learn, he will need to learn to eat something else or perish. 
This does not explain where woodpeckers came from. It does not explain why they would know to stick their bill into a hole. It does not explain where their bills came from. All it does is say that variations give some members of a species on a horizontal plane the ability to adapt. And so this is causing a problem in this finch family. Mom, why does brother's beak look different than mine? And the mother pensively says, I always worried you'd ask about that one day. It's a secret, so you can't tell anyone but your brother's adapted. Adaptation. Now, there's also what we call in the survival of the fittest, the fact that certain individuals are weeded out. And, in fact, this is natural selection at a golf course, although it would only work under Darwinian principles if this golfer had not yet reproduced. All right. But if he's already reproduced, it's too late. The genes that make him want to pull a golf ball off the nose of a crocodile are going to be passed on to the next generation and not selected out. Now, this is obviously humorous and tongue-in-cheek, but it is basically showing the point that survival advantage of one member of a species versus another is the wisdom of God at work. It allows species to adapt to changes in their environment, to stresses that are imposed upon them. It's brilliant, and it has to do with the variability that God put into the DNA of all organisms. It's always horizontal. It's never vertical. It always rearranges what is already present. It never creates new genes. Genes are either altered or eliminated, or their ratio in the population is adjusted. But no new genetic material is created. No new genes are formed. This has never been demonstrated, and we're going to show how it is really biochemically impossible. So to spend a little longer on this so everyone is absolutely clear, we want to talk about the definition of what this whole weekend is about. We know what creation's all about. We now need to know what we mean when we say evolution. Evolution is not a bad word. It's certainly not a four-letter word. It's a word that has perfect uh, utility, a process of change in a certain direction. Generally, that is an upward or improvement direction, something that is lower or simpler or worse is turned into something that is higher or more complex or better. And so we see in our illustration here, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and the Wright brothers with the first airplane, which flew several feet off the ground for about 200 yards and then came back down. On your right, we have something else. This is a Lockheed Martin X-plane. It is a bit of a concept vehicle, but it has already been reproduced or produced. And it has a very specially designed aerodynamic contour and nose piece that allows it to break the sonic boom with a gentle thump. And this is uh, a better plane. Why is it a better plane? Because engineers have worked very hard over many decades to take the original prototype and to improve it and to improve it and to improve it and to come up with ideas that either worked or didn't work. And the ones that did work, they maintained and retained, and the ones that didn't work were discarded until finally we get something that is vastly improved. You see how the flow of energy and information allowed this evolution to occur. It obviously did not occur spontaneously. When we come to the evolution that I began to talk about is adaptation. The only thing Darwin ever demonstrated and the only thing that biochemistry allows 
This is the definition I'm going to use. Now, there are technical words in here. Some of you may not be completely uh, versatile using them or aware of what they mean. I'll try to explain them. What we see here is the dog kind, represented by the noble wolf on your left, and another kind of dog on the right. I won't speak as to how noble it is. Never would have existed without humans and their wild imaginations, I'll tell you that. I think that's a Lhasa Apso, good lap dog, doesn't do well in the woods. And where did these come from? Well, they came from evolution. In this case, selective, purposeful evolution called breeding, right? So a change in allelic frequency and function in a gene pool of a population of organisms over the time by natural selection, mutation, and genetic drift. There's a lot of jargon there, a lot of terminology, but that is the technical definition of adaptation. We'll come back to this a little later, but just to explain a little bit more about that for those of you who may not be aware. A gene is a stretch of DNA that codes for a protein. We are what we call diploid organisms, which means, with a couple of exceptions related to the X and Y chromosome, we have two copies of every gene. But in the room here, there may be 30 or 40 variants of that gene, but you're only allowed to have two of them, and I'm only allowed to have two of them, right? And so when we are merry and we have children, these genes are shuffled around. And of course, if some of us move up to the north and all have light-colored skin and blonde hair, we're going to lose the genes for darkness. And those who move to the equator tended to take darker genes with them. And so this is just population segregation that led to some very obvious external differences between Scandinavians, say, and people from Niger. The same could happen, of course, with uh, animals and plants, and plant breeders have exploited this, and so have animal breeders for many generations. So a copy of a gene that you carry at what we call a given locus is called an allele. And if there's 30 alleles for this location, you've got two of them. I've got two of them. Those frequencies change with breeding, if I can use that term, not a good term for humans, but with marriage and having children. And of course, if there's a survival advantage to a certain gene, it will increase in the population. So for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, we have the problem of malaria. And there's an abnormal gene that codes for something called a sickle cell anemia, which by itself, if you have two copies of that gene, will kill you. But if you have one copy, although you might be anemic and you might have some disadvantage in terms of stamina and resistance to disease, you will be resistant to malaria. Therefore, when malaria is a scourge in the area, that gene is going to become more prominent. It's simple. Is that a good thing? I suppose it is good for those who were living in a malaria belt. Did it create new material, new genetic information? No, it actually corrupted genetic information that was already there. And yet, because of that survival advantage, it it increased its frequency in the population. We'll see other examples of that later. I don't want to go into that much detail right now. We're introducing the subject. But we move from there. This is where the bait and switch occurs to something that is still called evolution, but means something entirely different. And now we are completely bereft of any experimental proof. We are now talking about speculation and theorizing. And we're not actually just going to talk about genetic information in living organisms, but we're going to make this a grand metaphysical concept so that everything in reality is now evolution. And this is exactly where this theory eventually went in academic circles who were waiting for this sort of way 
to dismiss God and to have humans and humankind exalted to the greatest place. So according to these people, 13.8 billion years ago, the universe accidentally created itself out of nothing, said somewhat tongue-in-cheek, admittedly. We'll talk about that later. Now you say, did the universe evolve? Did it also operate under principles of natural selection? Obviously not. Planets and stars don't have DNA. There's no way they can create variation that can be selected for. This concept of using evolution in that sense makes no sense at all. And yet we're told that this all happened spontaneously and the improvement was natural and it would just occur with no explanation, no program, no information, no designer. The Big Bang creates the Milky Way galaxy 13.1 billion years ago, according to these people. Then 4.6 billion years ago, the Milky Way galaxy created our sun. And then 4.5 billion years ago, the sun created the earth. And then inorganic chemicals created life. And finally, the primate ancestors created man the wise, homo sapiens. We're going to spend a good deal of time rejecting this slide and the one before it. None of this makes theoretical sense. None of it has been proven by experimental data. All of it is an attempt to evade the obvious conclusion that there's a God who made all things to whom we are responsible. So in this summary slide, we have all I'm going to say tonight about this subject. We will revisit it tomorrow. On your left, we have the truth, adaptation. Whether it is by environmental factors that are outside of our control or whether it is due to the ideas in plant and animal breeders, there certainly is variation. You see four varieties of a horse kind up on the top left, a Clydesdale or a Shire, I suppose, some sort of onager or donkey, a regular old Morgan horse or perhaps an Arab, and a zebra. All right, what do they have in common? They're all horsey, right? They all have the same basic background in DNA. Now, it's true, some of them may not be able to breed with each other anymore. That's perfectly acceptable perfectly in line with the Bible's view. If you separate animals for a long enough period of time, changes will occur that makes it very difficult for them to rebreed. Or if they do rebreed, they may be sterile, as when a donkey and a horse are bred together and produce a sterile mule. But they are still operating on a horizontal plane. They are still moving to the right or to the left or to the front or the back, but they're never moving up, never becoming anything other than horse. Same with the dogs on the bottom, a poodle, a dachshund, a boxer, a Dalmatian. Four different examples. God did not make each of those kinds. They evolved. We're using evolution in the proper sense of the word. And so we have the variety we see today. The middle panel is a complete fabrication and is completely false. It's the idea that this spontaneous generation of life, which we thought didn't happen in the laboratory, but I guess it did happen once, um, is what produced the amoeba. I suppose you would call that little critter on the bottom. Take advantage of my laser pointer here. And then through the progress of deep time, and they need their deep time, we're going to talk about that later, eventually it improved and it became a coelacanth fish on the right or it became a tall conifer on the left or a lobster or a dragonfly or a horse or a baboon. And all of this happened by dumb, blind chance. We utterly reject that. It not only is obviously against scripture, but it is against true science. And I'm looking at the bait. Natural selection is used as bait. 
And we grab it hook, line, and sinker and find the barb sharply in our mouths if we're foolish enough to bite it. Don't fall for bait and switch. It's a favorite tactic of people who are trying to deceive, right? So if what is true is on the left can be accepted and should be celebrated, what is in the middle is absolutely false and is to be rejected. So the erroneous evolution, and this is the last slide I have, I think, on this subject before we move into looking at Genesis 1 more carefully, will just tell us about the kinds of evolution people talk about, and we're going to reject all of them, but what's in the bottom box. Cosmic evolution talks about the origin of space, time, and matter. Chemical evolution, all elements coming from hydrogen by themselves. Stellar evolution, the origin of stars and planets. Organic evolution, the origin of life. And what we haven't, I haven't used this term yet, but I will later, macroevolution, which is the speciation, the vertical changes, the improvements, the addition of genetic material that must be true for the big grand scheme of evolution to have occurred, but for which there is no experimental evidence. We reject it. What do we accept? True evolution. Horizontal adaptation within a created kind, leading to all those different pigeons and doves, all those little dogs, A very blurry slide, I'll have to redo that one. Uh, One or two more slides here. We meet this man, Richard Dawkins, who I believe lives very close to by here. Darwin made it possible, says Richard, uh, one of the great blasphemers in the world today, to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Then he makes this statement, which is well known and is just as outrageous for the 15th time reading it as it was the first time. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. But in fact, they were not designed and they have no purpose. So famously, he talks in his blind watchmaker about the fact that the only watchmaker are the blind, meaningless, meandering forces of physics. Is this relevant? It is relevant. Science flies you to the moon. Religion flies you into buildings. If we could only take some time, and we will tomorrow, to show that the very science that took people to the moon was based on Bible principles and that the pioneers in these fields were Bible-believing Christians. Maybe not every one of them, but the big people who made the big paradigm shifts in science, beginning in the Reformation, which was the great impetus for this sort of thing, became so fruitful, were people who believed in the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does not fly people into buildings. That is obviously a corruption of religion. Don't be offended by this, but um, it's out there, so we might as well face it. If you think the world is 6,000 years old, according to this T-shirt, then you're too stupid to know how stupid you are. Well, I'm going to take that moniker of being stupid because the Lord Jesus was a young earth creationist, and I will happily stand beside him and be one as well. Not all scientists agree with this. This is all bluster. It's all propaganda. It's all posturing. Niles Eldridge, along with Stephen Jay Gould, remained evolutionists, but they realized that this idea of natural selection producing new species was absolutely bankrupt. And so they came up with this punctuated equilibrium idea, which we won't explain currently, but I just want to read what Niles Eldridge says. It has been the paleontologist, my own breed who have been most responsible for letting ideas dominate reality. We paleontologists have said that the history of life supports that interpretation, which means the gradual adaptive changes, all the while knowing that it does not. 
So molecules to man evolution is a fairy tale for adults. Stephen Jay Gould himself used the analogy of the just-so stories. He said the Darwinian neosynthesis, the neo-Darwinian synthesis, I guess is what he called it, the idea that all life came from a single source and that everything we see can be explained by the power of evolution. Stephen Jay Gould himself called that just-so stories. All they are. It is really propaganda. Niles Eldridge, for example, the man I just quoted on the previous slide, admitted that the horse series that supposedly shows Eohippus turning into the modern horse or the whale series beginning with a land creature that moved into the water and became the modern whale are just so stories. They are fabrications. And yet, and he's lamenting, I don't have this slide up right now, that these are taught as gospel truth in elementary schools. But the scientists know they're not true. Why? Because they're useful propaganda. The only difference between propaganda and education, this man's not a believer, but he makes a very valid point, is the point of view. The advocacy of what we believe in, we call education. The advocacy of what we don't believe in is propaganda. Here's some propaganda for you. Education is not a right. Knowledge is power. Power is dangerous. Keep them stupid. This one on the right is very outrageous. This is very American, by the way. Anti-vax, right? This draws the ridiculous conclusion that if you put a needle in them when they're young and vaccinate them, they'll turn into heroin junkies. No propaganda left behind. This is for homeschooling. And I'm not against homeschooling, by the way, but that's what this slide is all about. Because if you send them to the American educational system, they'll come out liberal Democrats, represented by donkeys, all right? There's something quite sinister. Uh, this is the uh, Jugend dient dem Führer, which means the youth serve the Führer. All 10-year-olds to the Hitler youth. And again, this idea of the youth hostel and the home. We're used to this kind of propaganda. We recognize it as propaganda. But what we don't realize, or we do realize, but we need to affirm again this weekend, is that the biggest propaganda ploy in the world right now occurs in classrooms in our schools. Malcolm Muggeridge said, I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially the extent to which it's been applied, will be one of the great jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious an hypothesis could be ex accepted with the incredible credulity that it has. Remember, fossils don't speak. Their story can be told from a biblical perspective, which is what we're going to do this weekend. Science doesn't speak. Scientists do. And scientists often have an agenda. Atheism is a religion. We're going to see that again as we review it through the weekend, which requires blind faith. Christianity does not require blind faith. The Bible never, were, never expects us to believe anything blindly. God proves himself to us, and then when he tells us something that is true that we cannot verify, we believe it because of its source. We believe the source, which we know to be infallible through our own experience with God. But if you believe the universe created itself from nothing, the odds of that happening are zero, and the proof that it has happened is non-existent. If you believe that life arose spontaneously by chance, Remember, the odds of that happening are zero. The proof is non-existent. If you believe that consciousness developed from physical matter, 
By chance, you're not wise. I won't call you a fool because that would be insulting. But look, the odds are zero. The proof is not existent. Thus we say about Christianity, if it is false, nothing matters. But if it is true, nothing else matters. This is a schematic that is used by Ken Ham. I'm just going to show it and talk briefly about it. Well known to this audience, the seven C's in God's eternal plan. Notice that the first three of them occur in the first few chapters of Genesis and the first four of them in the first 11 chapters. Creation. We must have a creation to begin with. Corruption. The explanation of the sin and the misery and the pain and the death in our world. Catastrophe. The geological evidence that God has moved in the past to judge sin. Confusion at Babel and the sending forth of the peoples to populate the earth. The coming of the Messiah, Christ. His death on a cross as a substitutionary atonement for men. And finally, the consummation. We're going to talk about Genesis 1. You don't take the Bible literally, do you? This woman asks with great fear and uh, astonishment. And my answer to that is, what other way would you take the Bible than as literature? Now, hear what I'm saying. When we say we take the Bible literally, it does not mean we take it always concretely and naively. We understand that literature has different forms or genres. For example, historical narrative tells true facts in sequential order and is meant to inform us about some history or some development. Poetry is another genre. It will move away from what is concrete and move into abstraction for artistic and underscoring purposes. It will use simile. It will use metaphor. It will use personification. It will use synecdoche and so on. Literary devices, which artistically still are telling true statements, but in a different way. There are genealogies in the Bible. There are different ways that the Bible presents its truth. All of those are literally accepted because we see the Bible as literature. How else would you take it? Do you think that God expected us to not accept the prima facie obvious meaning of the text, but to have some sort of Gnostic information that we were able to obtain through secret means that allowed us to decode the Bible and see the secret message behind it? That's not communication, that's obfuscation. God is the communicator, and he speaks through literature. And we take the Bible literally in the sense that we take it seriously, and we take it as factual from a God who cannot lie, but we understand that the way he frames his truth is going to be interestingly different in different parts of the Bible. So, of course, we take the Bible literally like we would take any other serious book, literally. To take it concretely would be to say, when Christ says, I am the door, that he was made of oak and it had hinges. And, you know, that would be very silly, and no, and no serious person would ever do that. And yet those who accuse us of woodenly taking the Bible concretely and naively are calling literal interpretation that. That's not literal interpretation. Whoops, that slide was supposed to be suppressed. Sorry. Uh, let me just pause and say anyone who wants these slides is free to have them. And there are like a thousand of them because I keep my notes on slides 
So I'm suppressing all the stuff that's supposed to be in my head that you're not going to get to read. <clears throat> but I think I made a few goofs there, so I may have to move through them. A literal interpretation of Genesis 1, though, taking it seriously, not only Genesis 1, but the following chapters, leads us to the conclusion that the universe is around 6,000 years old. That is, if we do not take gaps in Genesis 5 and 11, the two chapters of genealogies. This is, of course, what Bishop Usher said when he came up with the date of 4004 B.C. And uh, these are American institutions. You likely have your own over here, but Answers in Genesis and Creation Ministries International strongly support that view. Another very God-honoring and uh, Bible-believing institution, if institutions really don't believe Bibles, people in the institutions do, but you know what I mean, something with the tradition of upholding the truth of Scripture would be the Institute for Creation Research. And because they're more liberal with the genealogies, they'll allow a universe older than 6,000 years. Clearly, this is at extreme odds with the accepted chronology of science. Science falsely so-called, I might add. Again, I'm not sure what happened here. I thought I had all this stuff suppressed. When we come to... Actually, we're going to do this later. Uh, Genesis 1 is historical narrative, not poetry. I want to make this point that I watch my time because I do want to work through Genesis chapter 1 for the last half hour or so. Hebrew is very uh, straightforward in distinguishing between what is historical narrative and what is poetry. Hebrew poetry does not rhyme like English poetry does, or it doesn't use assonance or those sorts of techniques. It uses three techniques that we wouldn't call poetry, but we recognize immediately in the Bible as poetry. The first is parallelism. The second is terseness. And the third is something called ellipsis. All right? Now, I'm going to read you the first full-fledged poem in the Bible. And you'll see very clearly these three features, all of which are completely lacking in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which is historical narrative. And there's no way in Hebrew it could have been made more clear that it is meant to be historical narrative. It is as far away from poetry or allegory as you can get in that language. The first poem in the Bible, the first full-fledged one anyway, there are a couple of places like um, even in Genesis chapter 1 where God poetically describes the description, it's rather the creation of man and woman. This is in Genesis chapter 4. Lamech. Uh, actually, that's the wrong Lamech. Let's see. Chapter 4. Here it is. This is... Uh, Lamech talking to his two wives, Ada and Zillah. Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech. Parallelism. He just said the same thing twice. For I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. He's just, he's just used parallelism again. He said the same thing twice. Third, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, Seventy and sevenfold. Parallelism again. He said the same thing twice. So Hebrew will do this. It's either what we call synthetic parallelism or antithetical parallelism. The first statement is compared to the second. Terseness, brevity of speech, ellipsis. Verbs are left out because they're understood from the preceding phrase. For example, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. There's something missing there. Truly, Lamech shall be avenged. 
that's elided, it's taken out for compactness because that can be imported from the previous sentence. That's Hebrew poetry. Read it throughout the Psalms. You'll be struck with it again and again. It's very, very marked and obvious. There is no poetry in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. It is historical narrative. If you want to read poetry about creation, go to Psalm 104. And there it will generally follow the sequence of Genesis 1 and give you the alliteration and the simile and the metaphor and the personification and all the other things you expect from that kind of literature. Do not modify this section. I said that because these slides are borrowed from another set. Okay, This is uh, embarrassing, but um, anyway, we're moving on. Genesis is a book of beginnings, as you know. We have four great events in the first 11 chapters, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the dispersion. And then in the remaining chapters of the book, chapters 12 through 50, we have the lives of four great men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham teaching us about separation, Isaac about sonship, Jacob about service, Joseph about sovereignty. And if all of these are in here, I apologize and double apologize. Genesis gives us the origin and purpose of the universe, the solar system, the earth, the atmosphere, the biosphere, men and women, angels, Satan, afterlife, marriage, sin, language, nations, government, culture, religion. It's all there. It reveals God's personal relationships with people and his interest in men and women, Adam, Eve. It's amazing just all these personal relationships throughout this book. Before any nation of Israel is formed, before a people collectively are dealt with by the Lord, he deals with individuals. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Adam, Eve, Abel, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Joseph. The promise of the Messiah, we should never miss through Genesis. It's wonderful. The seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head in chapter 3. The sacrifice made by God to provide the coats of skin to cover the man and the woman in the same chapter. Abel, the second man, speaking of Christ, the shepherd who died. The ark of safety that shielded Noah and his sons and their wives. Isaac, the beloved son, received back from the dead and given a Gentile bride. The promised seed of Abraham, all nations will be blessed through your seed. Joseph, the favored son, despised and sold by his brothers. He becomes the savior of the world with a Gentile bride. The coming of Shiloh, the victorious lion of the tribe of Judah, praised and worshiped, to whom the scepter belongs, and unto him shall the gathering or the obedience of the people be. Genesis is full of Christ. Without Genesis, the rest of the Bible makes no foundation, has no foundation, and makes no sense. No wonder the devil has viciously attacked this very foundation of everything we believe. Genesis, in the chapters that we have read together, refutes these philosophies. Obviously, it refutes atheism that there is no God. Polytheism, that there is only one God, is the affirmation of Genesis. Pantheism says God is in the creation or part of it. No, God is apart from the creation. He existed before it, and he brought it into being. Obviously, evolution and materialism and existentialism, that is the pessimistic existentialism of the last hundred years. People like Sartre and Camus, God has a purpose for us. It isn't meaningless. There's a reason for everything. There's a reason for your life. Let's now walk through these days of Genesis. Day one, the heavens and the earth, the day and the night, 
God says, let there be light. Day number one is the initial act of creation. It is the beginning of the first day. It has the following elements. This is amazing, all in the first verse of the Bible. Number one, the element of time, which did not exist before. God is timeless. In the beginning. Spirit, God, Elohim, the eternal God. We are introduced to the concept of the Trinity immediately in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Because the word Elohim is plural, but the verb that goes with it is singular. Not only that, but we meet the Spirit of God in the third verse. Now, if people say, well, this is the plural of majesty, this is too early in the Bible to be talking about Trinity, this is the plural of majesty, like Queen Victoria saying, we are not amused, something like that. Well, that might be a great idea. The problem is there's no evidence in Semitic literature that that was ever used. So the plural of majesty, while you commonly read about it, has no precedent in the literature of this time. This plurality and unity is teaching us the important truth that the God who made all things is not Allah. He is not a mono-God. He is a triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Third, action, obviously. We have God creating from nothing, the Hebrew word bara, meaning created. We have space, the heavens, and we have mass, energy, matter, the earth. All the elements of reality are mentioned in these wonderful five expressions in the opening seven words of the Bible. Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayam et viet ha-aretz in Hebrew. Seven words. In the beginning time, I'm going to show you now the stamp of three, Father, Son, and Spirit, in these opening expressions. In the beginning, time exists in three dimensions, past, present, and future. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, created the heavens, space with height, breadth, and depth, and the earth, matter, solid, liquid, and gas, if you'll allow the plasma phase to be included in the liquid. All right, so we're going to look um, at a little bit more about these first couple of expressions um, by showing the, it's coming up in the next slide, the scheme that God is following in these six days of creation. The earth was, first of all, unformed and it was unfilled. When I get to talking about the gap theory in a few minutes, I'll show you that this is not an indication of any judgment. These are not negative words. They simply mean that the way God formed things in the beginning was to make a template that he would then develop. And so initially it was not formed. The first three days he forms it. It initially was not filled. The second three days he fills it. We'll see that in a chart in a moment. So without form means unformed. Void means unfilled. What do you do about something that's not formed? You form it. What do you do about something that's void or unfilled? You fill it. And so God very orderly is going to move through these six days and accomplish just that. So these are the ways these days develop. Forming. Day number one, God creates light and he separates it from darkness. That's forming. When does God fill in day four, because he now produces the greater and the lesser lights to fill the sky. That's the sun and the moon and the stars. And so light is created on the first day and then the filling of the space to bring about that light for the rest of creation will occur on the fourth day. Day number two, God creates a sky. He separates the waters above from the waters below. 
And then he is going to, that's the formation. Then he's going to fill that space on the fifth day. So what does he do about the skies? He fills them with birds. What does he do about the seas? He fills them with fish. Day number three occurs in three parts. I see there's a little correction here. The land is separated from the sea and it's stocked with vegetation. So on day six, the animals fill the land that was separated from the sea and then that is stocked with vegetation and finally God creates man in a second part. I'm going to tell you something uh, that you're probably anticipating. People say, well, you say death didn't occur before the fall. What about plant death? That's a naive position. Plants do not die in the Bible definition of death, which has to do with the soul of life and with the breath. Cellular life occurs. I can flick a cell off. It's alive, but it's not living in the Bible sense. I can take an organ that is alive and keep it alive in a perfusion fluid. It's not alive in the Bible sense. The organism is alive when it has the soul of life. That's the technical expression in this chapter, which includes sentient beings, animals, and which has the breath of life. So plant death is a, is a non sequitur. Plants are not part of the filling. That's the importance of this chart. Plants are part of the forming. Plants are the place. They are part of the environment that God will then fill with living things, fish, birds, animals, and man. Now, I want you to see, and we're going to have to go through this relatively quickly because of the time, there is a very interesting number of things that are true of the different days, including, you're seeing it right on the slide, the speaking, the evaluating, the separating, the naming, the reviewing, and there's also working and blessing. I'll give away the goods right now. The only day that has all of these features is the all-important sixth day when God reaches the climax of his creation. But there are features of these mentioned, and I have this all on the chart, and if you're interested in this, certainly this is something you could look at later. Let's just see how it does work, though, on day number one. God says, let there be light, and there's light. And then he evaluates that light. He says that light is good. Then he separates, and God is a God of distinction and separation. You're going to see him separating things throughout this chapter, light from darkness, the heavens, or the, the waters above from the waters below. Even man is separated into male and female at the end of the chapter. So he then names, and naming, as you know in the Bible, is claiming. So if you name something, you claim it, right? So this is God's ownership and acceptance of what he has made, and he reviews it. There was morning and evening the first day. Now, in this first day, we don't have the working and the blessing, and you'll see as I move quickly through the other days that I will carefully tell you which of these features are mentioned in each of the days. I want to address a subject right now that is not obvious in the English text. The evening and the morning are one day. Do you know the difference between a cardinal and an ordinal number? An ordinal number is first, second, third, fourth, fifth. A cardinal number is one, two, three, four, five. The way the Hebrew reads in this chapter is on day one, evening and morning, one day. Not the first day. Not our first day. Not the first day. One day. Why does God the Spirit say that? Because he is going to very emphatically prove, not only in this verse, but for many other reasons that we'll look at later, that this is a 24-hour solar day. He has just defined it. Now, we said there was 
day and night. And then he said morning and evening, and then he says one day. And you say, well, that's interesting because day was only 12 hours the first time he used it because he's comparing it to the night. And why does he not say, and it was, why does he say it was morning and evening one day? Why doesn't he say it was day and night one day? Because that's confusing. You're just using day, talk about bait and switch, or equivocation, you're using day in two different senses. So he says, there is such a thing as daylight, it's 12 hours, and such a thing as night, 12 hours. But when you put those two things together, rather than confusing you by saying morning and uh, day and night, we're going to now change it to morning and evening. So you know we're talking about 24 hours. And then we're going to define morning and evening as one day. Now, the second day is not the second day. It is a second day, a third day, a fourth day. So these are ordinal numbers, different from the first day. A fifth day, the sixth day, the seventh day. What's the distinction being made? Everything is preparatory in the first five days for the all-important sixth day, when God will bring forth man, his creature. And all six days are preparatory to the time when God can rest in contentment and satisfaction on the seventh day. Now, the objection that some people will raise is if the sun and moon and stars were created on the fourth day, you're saying that basically space was created and the earth was made before the sun and the moon and the stars? How can that be when earth is such a small speck and it revolves around the sun, the old Timers thought it everything revolved around the earth, but we know better than that. We know that the earth revolves around the sun. Well, it depends. Uh, we're going to talk about Einsteinian theories tomorrow. That depends on your perspective, right? Relativistically, it's no more correct to say that the earth revolves around the sun than it is to say the sun revolves around the earth. What you can say is this. The center of mass and the gravity is the sun. But what revolves around what is relativistic? Number one, okay? Number two... There is no point in God saying, so So, why, why does God create the earth first? Because it's the theater of his universe. This is a special planet. We're going to find out about that. You might think it's small, but space is nothing to God. He can cast the stars, the trillions of them, into existence with no effort whatsoever. He is making this planet the place where redemption's drama will be played out. This earth is unique. This earth is significant, and we're going to see that tomorrow in what we call the anthropic principle. So God shows that, and he also is, this is what we call demythologizing in the chapter. He's going to take the, the Shemesh, the, the, the sun worshippers, and he's going to strip them of everything. Because remember, this children, these children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, and they're the people to whom this chapter was given. And they're coming out of a people who worship the sun and the moon and the stars, and they're going to move into Canaan where people are worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. And God is saying, look, this is the truth. And I'm not even going to call the sun a sun in this chapter. I'm going to call it a greater light. And I won't mention the name of the moon because that's a god to you Canaanites. I'm going to call it the lesser light because this chapter is talking about planet Earth. It's very geocentric. It's going to bring that stage into being where God will play out the great drama of salvation. So he does not create the sun and the stars until the fourth day, as we'll see. They're filling what he created on day number one. Day two, we're going to go rather quickly here now for the interest of time. God forms the atmosphere and the seas. 
Again, for those of you who would like to go into the details, you'll see that God speaks and he works. He separates, he names, and he reviews. Then on day three, he's going to form the land and the creation of plant life. And he is going to do a second thing. So day three comes in two stages as day six comes in two stages. And the second part of day number three is going to be the formation of land and the creation of plant life. In the interest of time, I'm going to move fairly quickly through this. God is going to then on day four create the sun and the moon and the stars, filling that space that he created on the first day with light. Then on day five, he's going to fill the seas and the sky because he's just separated them from each other. We won't talk about breaching great white sharks right now, other than to say that is a very unfortunate seal. I made some of these slides to show people the wonders of some of these creation items. This is the black marlin, the largest bony fish probably, and also the fastest, which can cruise at 80 knots. Day five, he fills the seas in the sky. Now we turn to the birds. And again, I have some cool examples of some of the world's largest eagles. Here's the largest, the harpy eagle. And the peregrine falcon, which can do a stoop in which it is moving at 270 miles an hour. Amazing creatures. Anyway, this is not a nature talk at this point due to the time constraints. Day number six, he fills the land with the cattle and with the creeping things. And there's some more of them for you. And finally, we have day number six. All of our elements are present for the first time. God speaks, he names, he works, he separates, he blesses, he evaluates, and then he reviews. The end of the chapter tells us that all animals were vegetarian at the beginning as well as humans. For those of you skeptics out there who say, what are you telling me a lion was eating grass? What about all the population explosion that would occur if there were no predation? Don't you know about the food chain? I'm going to tell you that the creation was very different before the fall than it was afterwards. And we know that, uh, again, due to the time, I'm going to move quickly through this. Um, As you know, the origin of the day has to do with the rotation of the earth. The month is the rotation of the moon, of the earth around, uh, sorry, the moon around the earth. And of course, the earth around the sun creates our solar year. But the interesting thing from Genesis chapter 7, sorry, Genesis chapter 1, is that the seven-day week has no precedent in astronomy. It is an utterly arbitrary number. You could have a month of five days times six weeks, right? 30 days. You could have 10-day weeks times three, 30 days. You could have uh, 15 days per week and have two weeks per month. What's this all about seven? Why seven? Because of Genesis 1. It's one of those harks back to the very creation that all different civilizations learned very, very early on in their history and for the most part have never departed from. Okay, in Genesis chapter 3, we go through the fall, and I just want to raise a couple of points here before we move on to talking just briefly about some of these uh, compromised positions. This chart, I think, helps us to understand that creation, mankind, The animals were made, there was no death, 
They disobeyed their creator. By one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. By man came death. Therefore, by man will also come the resurrection of the dead, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Whereas evolution tells us that death is as much a part of life as life itself, and that cruelty and suffering and bloodshed all occurred for thousands, if not millions, of years prior to mankind even arriving on the 11th hour, 59th minute, and 59th second of history. Before the fall, man was naked and unashamed, according to... Uh, to the Bible, but after the fall, he hid. We're talking about changes that occurred in Genesis 3 here quickly. Before, God provided the food. Afterwards, man had to work for his food under the sweat of his brow. Before the fall, the garden was given by God and the plant, the food was vegetarian. Afterward, the ground was cursed and thorns came. Before, the serpent was beautiful. Afterward, he crawled on the ground. Before, there was harmony with the animals. Afterwards, enmity and fear. Prior to this, we can assume there would have been childless, sorry, painless childbearing, whereas uh, human women have the unique problem of the pain of childbearing that is actually not even known among other mammals. Universal vegetarianism followed by carnivory. No death followed by death. The entire ecosystem changed from before the fall. Before... Plants were producers and animals were consumers. Afterwards, there was a genetic reprogramming. Genes were switched on, genes were switched off. Things changed. I'm going to show you some evidence for that. And so now the food chain as we know it operates and it's necessary to have not only producers but first and second order consumers. Therefore, these features of the carnivores that are clearly made for eating meat and for nothing else are actually elements of the fall just as the formation of something like thorns. Now, it's not that God started to create new things at the fall. The creation was finished on the sixth day. But plants that did not formerly have thorns now grew them. And animals which were previously vegetarian became carnivorous. And the snake, we know about the change that occurred with the snake. It changed its morphology completely. And just as at the beginning, so at the end of the Bible, we get some clear indications that God will restore Eden again. And we know that the wolves and leopards and lions and bears and lions, and lions are on here twice for some reason, and the wolves and the cobras and the adders are going to be very different animals in the new heaven and the new earth. The wolf, as we know, shall lie down with the lamb. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Now, I'm moving quickly because I've done a very poor job at budgeting time, and I'm not going to keep you over. I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about these positions, mainly perhaps with this audience, the gap theory. If you are trying to fit the geological ages into Genesis, you're on a fool's errand. It will not work. It will never come up. You'll never come up with any sort of understanding that will be satisfactory to the geologists of this world. It will not work, so stop trying. Genesis is absolutely at odds with biological evolution, as it is taught, and with the deep time of uniformitarianism. Do not try to reconcile them. You will fail, and you will be a fool in their eyes. It's better to stand for the truth and understand that, as the evidence I'm going to show you over the next day, I'm not expecting you just to take this hook, line, and sinker without thinking about it, shows us that the Clear, straightforward, prima facie understanding of Genesis 1 is the correct understanding. See, you have to think. 
that if I believe that my interpretation, which I have come up with in this century, as the correct understanding of a book that was written 4,000 years ago, is the correct understanding that everybody before me got it wrong, that is an arrogant position. That suggests that the original writer and the original audience to whom he wrote had no clue about what was actually being taught. But it required my enlightenment and my brilliance to finally decode it some thousands of years later. I'm being facetious as I put that, but do you see how ridiculous that is? Whatever Genesis 1 teaches, it must have been transparent to the people who read it at the beginning. This book was made for the Israelite people. It was made to give them confidence in their God as they moved into the promised land. They knew what it meant, and they did not have any concept of gaps, theistic evolution, framework hypotheses, or any of the other inventions of people which try to accommodate Genesis to science and fail. They are compromised positions. Give them up. Now, I'm being a little bombastic in the way I put it, but I don't really have time to go through this in the detail I would like. Let me just explain what these positions are just with the next few slides, and then we'll actually stop. The gap theory is the most respectable of all because it is believed by Bible-believing people who will say that everything from Genesis 1, verse 3 down can be taken as historical narrative and requires no adjustments, no decoder rings, no nuancing, no spin. It's all straightforward. But we must insert a gap so we can have geological ages between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 1, 1 2, and 1, 3. So that gap there, actually is between 1, 1, and 1, 2, as you'll see on the slide, is followed by six literal days. The fossils, according to this, belong to the previous creation. Red flag goes up right away. Death, suffering, and sin before, sorry, death and suffering before sin, it can't work. Fossils, they say, belong to a previous creation. Thomas Chalmers and C.I. Schofield would be two very wonderful believers and uh, respected men who uh, took this position erroneously. The day-age theory is pretty much out these days. It comes from a misunderstanding of one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. You understand that, of course, for that phrase to make any sense, the day had to be 24 hours. Because if you're saying a day is a long period of time, then Peter makes the following pointless observation. A long period of time is like a long period of time. No, he's saying with God, time is irrelevant. And so very few people would take that position today. Progressive creationism, I do want to spend a minute pointing out the kinds of people who teach this because many of these people are staunch defenders of creationism. There are people we respect, people whose books we read. Even John Lennox, I believe, has succumbed to this error. And some of the people in the organizations that you may have understood, Reasons to Believe, Discovery Institute, American Scientific Affiliation, people like Stephen Meyer, Michael Behe, William Dembski, Philip Johnson, Michael Denton, David Berlinski, and John Lennox take this view. They want to make the six days 24 hours in general, but they say they're not contiguous. So you can put thousands of years between the days. I ask you, did the children of Israel who read Genesis 1 believe that or have any inkling of that? No, that's obviously a motivated interpretation. Literary framework hypothesis, in my view, is the teaching of false prophets because they make the following postmodern, ridiculous statement. Genesis is true, but it's not historical. What does that mean? 
I hear a false prophet. And finally, theistic evolution, which completely ignores the beginning of Genesis and treats an entirely different type of literature not to be taken seriously, and yet claims to accept all the rest of Bible truth regarding sin and salvation. Again, I have used the time up, and so I'm not going to spend the time, but I will, what I'll do is I'll, uh, perhaps annoyingly, move through these slides so you can see that there's a lot of interesting stuff here if you would like to study it on your own. All right. Uh, verse earliest ages, there's our friend C.I. Schofield. And here's some technical matters about above consecutives and above disjunctions, disjunctives, which I can speak to any of you privately about, which show that from the Hebrew grammatical point of view, a gap is impossible between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And, and, and you say, well, if you're so smart, how come other people believe it who know, who know Hebrew as well? Because they have, they have a motivated reason for doing so. And you can understand that from reading their literature. If you take conservative Hebrew scholars all the way to the extreme liberal end, people like Gary Rensberg of Rutgers, they will show you that this is not possible. That Genesis 1-1 is a statement. And Genesis 1-2 are three dependent clauses that are actually explaining further details about Genesis 1-1. Take my word for it. All I have time to say right now is there's no room for a gap. This is another common distinction. The word create versus made, they try to make hay out of this. You'll see from the slides that all of the creative acts of Genesis 1 are described by both words. They are synonymous. Again, the histories of death we've already reviewed. Um, Okay, this is really bad, but I'm going to go flying through this because I have a few slides at the end I want to get to. Christianity is, according to atheist Richard Bozarth, it must be. Total, this, this man understands this better than some Christians do. Must be committed to special creation as described in Genesis. And Christianity must fight with its full might, fair or foul, against the theory of evolution. It becomes clear now that the whole justification of Jesus' life and death is predicted on the existence of Adam and the forbidden fruit that he and Eve ate. Without the original sin, who needs to be redeemed? Without Adam's fall into the life of constant sin terminated by death, what purpose is there in Christianity? None. What this means is that Christianity cannot lose the Genesis account of creation. The battle must be waged for Christianity is fighting for its very life. I'm afraid he's absolutely spot on. Now this is the kind of evangelism we normally don't espouse. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, but you can see that that kind of appeal is, means nothing to this man who has given away the foundation. A gospel with no creation has no foundation. A gospel with no cross and empty tomb has no power. A gospel without the rapture in heaven has no hope. We must not seed ground on any of these areas. Evolution, or is it? (laughs) I will not question evolution. Well, we're going to spend some time tomorrow going into much more detail on some of these areas. Uh, I will promise to call more slides. I clearly misjudged the amount of time I was going to take at the beginning of this. But I hope that this session was a good introduction. I hope that all of you will have another look at Genesis chapter 1. 
And I hope that if you disagree with me on any of the things that we've talked about tonight, that you feel free to come to me and we can talk about it or we can deal with it in the Q&A. With that, though, I'd like to thank you for your attention over a very long meeting. And I hope everyone was able to hear all right and that the slides were easy to read. And with that, I'm actually going to ask the Lord's blessing, and then I'll turn it over to Tom for some further um, information.